Our reading this morning is from 1 John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the The blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is God's word. Let me uh, lead us in prayer. As we begin. Our Father, you are light, and in you there is no darkness at all. And so we praise you this morning that you are the God who uh, created light, who speaks light into darkness. And for all of us who would call ourselves Christians here this morning, you've done that miracle in our hearts. You've spoken and woken our hearts with light so we can hear you rightly. So, Father, please, again, be at work amongst us, giving us the light we need to hear you rightly and to respond to you rightly, because there is no darkness in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week then, we started this letter of 1 John, and uh, we said not a bad summary of it is this sort of twofold no. That believers are meant to know with confidence John really wants Christians to know with confidence. Uh, Andre, that may blow me away a little bit. The, uh, I'm not going to be able to keep my Bible in one place. The, um, uh, wants believers to know with confidence. Uh, And in two senses, objectively to know that the Christian gospel is true and trustworthy. They met Jesus Christ. You can rely upon their witness to know objectively, but also to know subjectively. To know that you are a Christian by how you're living. Be reassured in that by how you're relating to God. So in those twofold sense, uh, John wants you to know with confidence if you're a Christian that this is all true. At the same time, there's a, there's a pejorative or an edge to it which says no to idols. No to idols. There were uh, people who had gone out from these churches that John is writing to and but were from the outside were troubling them, troubling the churches by saying, we've got a better Jesus. We've got a better Jesus. You can have more, grow more in your knowledge, superior knowledge, heightened experiences. Come, share this Jesus. But essentially they'd made an idol. They'd got their Play-Doh out from their children's toy box and fashioned a new Jesus, not the Jesus of the scriptures. It was just a more accommodating Jesus, easy to follow. No problem following one such as him. Where John wants us to know the living God, or in this word, um, dominated last time really, to have fellowship. 
And it comes up again in uh, verse 6 of our reading, chapter 1, verse 6. John wants us to have fellowship with the living God. That isn't just knowing him. We said last week that's sharing in him. Very big difference, not just cognitively knowing about him, but sharing in him, having the same uh, ambitions, the same desires, spending time with him, fellowship, real, meaningful relationship. That is John's ambition for us. And he continues in that vein today. Just so we're sure, he says, I just want to get this clear with you. If you are one with fellowship with God, well, there's one massive statement he makes, and then three errors he wants to knock down. So verse 5 has the big statement. God is light in him, there's no darkness. And then he just knocks down in turn three errors that these idolaters were suggesting. Okay. So let's work through them in turn. There's a big idea, big theory, <laughs> and then three little errors. And we'll work through them like that. So here's the big statement that John wants to make. Uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. It's a fairly common metaphor, but uh, biblically or just generally. God is light. And throughout the scriptures there's two main senses to that. There's God is light uh, intellectually and then God is light morally. So if you're going to walk in the light, there'll be both an aspect of thinking and a a moral performance to it or behavior to it. So in the sense that God is light, first of all, in thinking, in the outside of him all is darkness. So the Bible would talk, until you're a Christian, you're walking in darkness. When you become a Christian, God opens your eyes so you walk in light. You see, there's a sort of mental element to it there. Throughout the scriptures, the perspective is, unless you're a Christian, you're walking in darkness. It's as if you come home one night, you come home late from work or some social engagement, and you get in the house, but you don't want to upset your housemate or or a family or cat, whatever it may be, and uh, you come and you don't turn on the lights, because you don't want to wake everyone up, so you just sort of tiptoe in, but there's just sort of traps everywhere, there's sort of a bag in the hallway, there's a toy on the stairs, and you're stumbling around in darkness, and before you know it, it's, and, you're cl- and you've woken the whole house up, calamity. That's, you're walking in darkness. You don't see, you can't see what is true. And John says, God is light. God is light. If you know him, you walk in truth. There's a sort of cognitive element to the light, walking in the light, understanding. But the other main sense, probably dominating here, is a moral sense. God is presented as one who lives in unapproachable light. Fearsome light. You can't get near him. Pure burning light. You sit on the TV, the, uh, the Olympic cauldron flaming away with its 204, I think it is, little petals, not so little actually, uh, petals. Um, it's, we, when we went to go to the stadium, we got quite near it for a photo. And unsurprisingly, from a thing that big, there's a lot of heat and a lot of light. And you don't want to get too close to it, because it would hurt. And biblically, the picture is, God is a pure light. You want to go near him? Well, it's just like an ice cube, you and I. Throw an ice cube into that big Olympic cauldron. It's not going to last very long. No great impact. God is light. Morally. 
humans don't just walk into his presence. If you're going to have fellowship with this God, you need to know who he is. You don't just saunter in, hello, who are you? And off you go. It's hard, actually, to have fellowship with a God such as this. God is light. Morally. Mentally. There's no darkness. Okay? Fine, John. Okay, good, super, very clear. Now he says, the people that are troubling you, they're making three mistakes. Let me just run through them in turn. Because you don't want to make these. Because if you make these mistakes, you can't walk with God. Three mistakes, three errors. Here's the first. I'm a Christian who walks in sin. Verse 6 and 7. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So the error here is, these false Christians, these idolaters were saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but my behavior is immoral. That's all right. No problem with that. Who cares? I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I walk in sin. I walk in darkness. It's fine. And John says, no, that's not right. Now, back then, in the first century, it was probably a little bit like this. There's a sort of dualism system. People thought the soul and the body were very different. So you could have a Christian soul, and it didn't matter what you did in your body. bit odd. Today, that's not very common. Far more common is this. People might become engaged with Christianity and have this sort of view. God forgives my sin, so it doesn't matter how I live. God forgives. It's what he does. So how I live today, next week, who cares? Vent my temper and rage at someone. Have an affair. Steal from work. Who cares? I'm a Christian. God forgives. Doesn't matter. And John says, no. No. If you say anything along those lines, verse 6, you're a liar. And you do not live by the truth. That's what he's saying very clearly. So the best picture you have here is you either walk in darkness or you walk in the light. To put to walk in the light is then it's a wonderful biblical metaphor. Walking, just sort of you keep going, don't you? Just sort of gently one step in front of the other. It's a lifestyle metaphor. So to walk in light is to have a lifestyle that is characterized by seeking to understand God and seeking to follow Him. Not perfectly, no one does it perfectly, but seeking to do that, that sort of lifestyle. To walk in darkness is to have a lifestyle that isn't really bothered about what God says. You may go to church every week, but you're not really interested in what he's saying. And you're not really interested in letting it change your life. Or to caricature, let me put it this way. To walk in the light is to go to work each day. And uh, you go in and you listen to what your boss says. You pay attention, you try to understand him rightly, and as far as you're able, you enact your boss's instructions. So you follow your employer in the light. You're doing your best. You make mistakes, behavior makes mistakes. But you listen carefully and try to implement it. To walk in the darkness is, you don't bother going to the office. You work from home, as everyone did during the Olympics. And uh, you work in a subterranean basement, and there's no email, and there's no phone. You do get the post... So the only way you'll ever hear from your boss is if he sends you a letter. You can't be, you're not really interested in what he has to say. 
you're really interested in doing anything for him. All you're interested in is saying is, I'm an employee, give me my paycheck. Now, are you an employee, really, who never goes to work, never listens to what your boss says, never enacts anything he desires? After a while, you're going you're to get your P45. Someone's going to say, mm, you're not living like an employee, are you? You're not working that way. And John is saying eventually it comes a point in the Christian life, if you pay no attention to the truth of God, and if your behavior is not marked by obedience to the truth, you have no fellowship with him. You're not a Christian, are you, if you're living like that? There's a strong contrast drawn in 6 and 7. You get, we get a little table, it's very obvious, but um, you get these sort of twofold every time. I don't know if you can see it in the sun. But if we walk in darkness, verse 6, two things, we lie, we do not practice truth. By contrast, if we walk in light, two things, we have fellowship with each other, the blood of Jesus purifies us. Now that may not be the most obvious thing we're expecting, that we have fellowship with each other. You might expect if we walk in the light, then we have fellowship with God. But for John in this letter, how you relate to God and how you relate to others who are Christians, you can't really pull those apart. So just look down, we'll get there eventually uh, in a couple of weeks' time, but just look down at chapter 2, 9 and 10. Similar point being made, but chapter 2, 9 and 10, anyone who claims to be in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him to make him stumble. So you can't, you can't claim to be walking in the light if you're furious with someone here and it's been going on a while and you don't forgive them. You're not talking to someone. You can't do that. Your lifestyle is, is wrong. John just assumes that if you're walking rightly with God, you'll walk rightly with others. And the second thing there, verse 7. Now, this is very interesting. Do you see the conditional sentence here? You remember your English grammar for a moment. If we walk in light, the blood of Jesus purifies us. Now, if you've been a Christian for a while, that, does that sound right? It's a slightly surprising little statement, isn't it? If we walk in the light, the blood of Jesus purifies us. If we walk in darkness, it does not. You see, John is making a very well, identical link between how we live and the efficacy of Jesus' sacrifice for us. Or to put it in even more shocking, systematic terms, our justification does rely in part on our behavior, our lifestyle. Golly. I'm just, that's slightly shocking, isn't it? But just look down, uh, if that alarms you, verse 9, he says basically the same thing again in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we don't, we're not cleansed. Again, condition. If we fail to confess, we're not forgiven. If we fail to walk in the light, God says he are you really a Christian? Golly, John. <laughs> that's, slightly, you know, that's slightly strong, isn't it? Let me just at this point, I introduce 
uh, an illustration. We'll come back to it in different forms as the weeks go on, but it, I'll, I'll probably improve it by then. But let me try and be simple. If, no, let me, cows. Wander through the English countryside, you'll see cows. What do cows do? They moo and they eat grass. That's what cows do. So if you're wandering through a field one day and there's a creature that's eating grass and goes moo, it's likely to be a cow. That's what they do. Cows moo. Now you and I could sit here, or in fact you and I could after this service go to Green Park, we could sit there, eat grass and moo. That does not make you and I a cow. It does not. And that in a sense is the language that John used throughout this letter. If you're a cow, you eat grass and moo. If you're a Christian, you live a certain way. Eating grass doesn't make you a cow. Living a certain way does not make you a Christian. But if you're a Christian, you walk in the light. It's just what you do. And in that sense, there is no page of the New Testament that that, that doesn't cry out, once you become a Christian, your lifestyle changes. That is always, always, always indicated throughout the New Testament. So all John is saying here is if... If you don't walk in the light, that's probably a sign that you've, you've not, you've not truly been converted. So don't be fooled on that. How you live, golly, it really matters. You've seriously misunderstood the Christian faith if you think God just forgives you and then your lifestyle doesn't make a hoot, doesn't matter a hoot. You've got that wrong. Now, one person who, who writes very, very clearly on this, I read over the uh, over the holiday uh, a biography of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was the German pastor, who throughout the 1930s fiercely opposed uh, Adolf Hitler and during the war conspired against him as part of the attempt to assassinate him, uh, particularly in 1944, the Stauffenberg plot. And um, Bonhoeffer, in his generation, was appalled by what he described as the endemic cheap grace in the German churches. He put it this way. Cheap grace is to hear the gospel preached as follows. Of course you've sinned, but now everything is forgiven. So stay as you are and enjoy the consolations of forgiveness. You've been forgiven, stay as you are. He says that's cheap grace. That's not biblical. The problem of such a proclamation is it contains no demand for discipleship. He says, there's no take up your cross and follow me in that message. You you got Jesus wrong at that point. He said, by contrast, not cheap grace, but Jesus gives us costly grace. Again, let me quote him. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. It comes as a word of forgiveness to the broken spirit and the contrite heart. It's costly because it compels a man to submit to the yoke of Christ and follow him. It's grace because Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Do you see what he's saying? That the grace that comes in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that comes through him dying in our place, will always change us if we've understood it rightly. And if it doesn't change us, have you really understood him at all? Was Bonhoeffer's fiercest condemnation uh, in the 1930s, was this. Cheap grace allows you to say, I'm saved by Jesus Christ. The Jews are being treated horribly, but that's not my problem. 
Genocide is taking place, but I'm okay because I'm forgiven. He says, Daddy, how can you say that? How can you sit in your churches and say that? Even Germany in the 1930s. There's no power to change in cheap grace. It just does nothing to transform you. He'd say, that's not the gospel. John here would say, look, that's not, you've not understood Jesus. You've got an idol of Jesus if you don't change when you follow him. There's the first, there's the longest error. I'm a Christian who walks in sin, and I think that's fine. Got no problem with that. Second. Let's pick up the pace. Second is, uh, is a bit different. I'm a Christian who is without sin. So if the first error is denying that how you behave matters, this second error is denying that humans are inherently sinful. Verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Here is the wildly unpopular doctrine of original sin. That within every one of us, there is flaw. There is a problem. It lies within. Deep down inside us, we are sinners. That is always unpopular. People always find all sorts of excuses. Look, I don't, I don't commit crimes because I'm bad, but just because, well... In our family, we... Um, there's been a bit of a renaissance in West Side Story. All of a sudden, particularly with the last few words, we love the film, the musical West Side Story, particularly my son, a little eccentric, age seven, but there it is, just adores uh, West Side Story. You may be unfamiliar with it, shame on you, but um, uh, those who know it well know that one of the best song, in, well, not the musically, but the most clever song in it, is the song Officer Krupke, where one of the young hoodlums, one of the gang who's on the street committing petty crime, uh, is engaged by the police officer, Officer Krupke. And Krupke says, oh, you're, gonna, you know, you're in trouble, I'm going to arrest you, why are you so bad? And he comes out with a whole succession of excuses. Anything but the part of the fact I'm bad. Do you remember it goes a bit like this? To the officer Krupke, we're very upset. We never had the love that every child ought to get. We ain't no delinquents, we're misunderstood. Deep down inside us, there is good. It's not my fault, my mum didn't love me. That's why I commit crime. So you get sent off to a judge. The judge sings out, Officer Krupke, you're really a square. This boy don't need a judge. He needs an analyst's care. It's just his neurosis that ought to be curbed. He's psychologically disturbed. No, 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 it's not his upbringing. He's just got, you know, just a few mental issues. Send him off to the psychiatrist. Psychiatrist says, Officer Krupke, you're really a slob. This boy don't need a doctor, just a good honest job. Society's played him a terrible trick. And sociologically, he's sick. No, it's not his parents. He's only got mental problems. It's just there's flaws in society. He's caught in a poverty trap. That's the problem. That's why the, that, eventually he's sent off to the social worker. Social worker. Officer Krupke, you've done it again. This boy don't need a job. He needs a year in the pen. It ain't just a question of misunderstood. Deep down inside him, he's no good. So the social worker gets the biblical doctrine correct. <laughs> yes, social workers. <laughs> you are very good. The, um, all sorts of excuses. That happens on a national level, on debate. It happens, of course, for us personally. Look, I, you know, I, I know I was really horrible, but you, you need to understand that's just how my parents treated me. So that's how I project it onto you. It's not my fault, it's my parents' fault. Look, I know I was really unreasonable to you that day, but um, 
I just had a bad run-in with a police officer. The state, the society, it's his fault. Look, I know I was really grumpy with you. I, I, you know, I know I lashed out at you, but it wasn't my fault. It was just our neighbours had a party. I didn't get enough sleep. It's someone else's fault. It's never my fault. The problem's never within. John says, no, the problem is within. It's never popular. But Christianity, Christianity is honest. It's no good imagining there's no war. There always will be. Christianity is very honest about the human condition. There's a problem within. Why the resistance? Why are people so hostile all the time? Because if the problem's within, you don't just need a self-help course. You need a saviour. Many people don't want to admit that. So again, let's just look at the... the uh, there it is. The comparison. Two things again. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, again, he'll forgive us our sins. He'll purify us from all unrighteousness. No, there's not just a general confession. We'll do that in a moment. Say it every, in every uh, uh, church gathering, there's a general confession altogether. But I don't think he's talking about that. It's if we confess our sins, plural, our sins, our particular ones, that's what's required. Genuine confession. I said this before, but let me run through here four marks of whether a confession is genuine. Not the only ones, but here are four obvious biblical marks of whether confession is genuine. Number one, we tell someone, a human, not just God, we tell someone. We don't just wait until we're caught before we admit our mistakes. We confess them to someone else. We admit. And they don't have to be pulled out of us like a bad tooth. We confess them. So for one, we tell other people, or tell another person. Two, we make amends. We put it right. There's payback if there's been financial irregularity. There's a willingness for counselling if there's been marital infidelity. We make amends. We, we seek restoration as far as we're able. We tell another person. We make amends. Three, we're patient with those we've hurt. We give them time to express their hurt to us. We don't, yes, but them. Look, I'm really upset. Yeah, but it's your fault. No, no, no. We don't demand. Listen, you, you're a, you just need to forgive me. You just need to forgive me. You can't demand that of someone else. You need to be patient with those you've hurt. Tell someone, make amends, be patient with those you've hurt. Fourth, pursue repentance and faith. Pursue them. That is repentance, throwing off our patterns of sinful behavior. This is why I committed that financial crime. And those were the steps that led there. So I'm going to make sure I don't walk down those steps. I'm going to throw off sin. Repentance. And I'm going to pursue faith as well. I will not wallow in self-pity and allow this to crush me. I will look up and know I'm forgiven and move on. I will pursue Jesus Christ so he'll build my faith further. Four marks. Tell someone, make amends, be patient with those we've hurt, pursue repentance and faith. Because verse 8, excuse me, verse 9 is wonderful. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. There's the second error. I'm a Christian and I don't sin. Last, briefly, verse 10. Third error. 
I'm a Christian who hasn't sinned. So not here denying the sinful nature, not denying that there's sin within, but saying, hey, look, I've been a Christian 20 years and I haven't sinned for the last 18. Extraordinary thing to say, but some do say it. Listen, here's, um, I hate doing this, but just so you understand that this is, this is, this is common. Here's one, uh, Christian teacher. Worldwide phenomenon. You'd, you'd find her books in every Christian bookshop you'd go into. Very striking little quote. She puts it this way. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it into my thick head that I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's heresy and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says that I'm righteous and I can't be righteous and a sinner at the same time. All I was ever taught to say was, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. I'm not poor. I'm not miserable. I'm not a sinner. That's a lie from the pit of hell. That's what I was. And if I still am, then Jesus died in vain. Amen? No. No, the poor woman is very confused. And John would say to her, verse 10, if you think that, you're a liar. And the word of God has no place in you. Do you see, he's very strong. If you put those tables all together, if you look at the left-hand side, the negatives, you maybe can't see it. Verse 6, if we walk in darkness, we lie. We do not practice the truth. Verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth's not in us. Verse 10, if we claim we've not sinned, we make God out to be a liar, even worse. John is saying, in his language, my dear children, can I warn you, there are a lot of people who are very confused. And have not understood the gospel at all. Don't listen to them. Don't be thrown by them. Don't be unsettled by them. Avoid those three errors. And the main application comes in chapter 2, verse 1, the first bit of it. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. Don't sin. That's John's point. See, he's wanting to raise, I don't know, raise the ethical temperature of the churches he's writing to. He's saying, look, your behavior, it matters. You do see that, don't you? If you're walking in the light, you will be changed. And if you're not being changed, you're, you're listening to the wrong voices. You've got an idol Jesus. The true Jesus, he changes you. He transforms you. Don't sin. I write this to you so that you do not sin. Don't sin. But, but, the second half of verse 2, but if anyone does sin, we have one to, who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. But look, we'll spend most of next week on those two verses. We need to unpack them there. But, but chapter 2, verse 1 is very striking, isn't it? Don't sin. Do not sin. But if you do, you'll be forgiven. Would you put those two next to one another? Oh, look, here's my problem this morning. I don't know what you need to hear. What says both of us? We, sorry, all of us need to hear both of them. Don't sin, but if you do sin, you'll be forgiven. But my question is for you, what do you most need to hear? Do you need to hear the, the, the bulk of this passage, which is John saying, your behavior matters. If you're following the living God, walk in light. 
your behavior really matters to him, don't sin. If you're slack morally, if you've drifted into, into a pattern of thought which thinks, well, God forgives, and I know I shouldn't be doing this, but what does it matter really? Don't sin. But some of us are much more tender conscience. And we think, oh my goodness, but all the ways this week I have made mistakes, I'm like, don't worry. If you sin, when you sin, you've always got a lawyer. You've always got an advocate who goes before you into the courtroom and says, innocent. Now, I don't know which you need to hear most this morning. You can only answer that yourself. Don't sin. But when you do, there is one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ. God is light. The only way we approach the living God is through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's how we have fellowship with the living God. But John's saying the one sure mark of we're looking at this morning, that you walk, that you have fellowship with him. I want you to have real confidence, real freedom in your Christian life. And if you want that, walk in the light. You'll know the pleasure of God. You'll know with confidence. You'll feel really wonderfully about your relationship with God. If you follow him, obey him, listen to him, walk in the light. God is light. Let me lead us in prayer. Our Father, my prayer for all of us here this morning is that we'd hear both of those statements rightly. Do not sin, but when you do, there is one who speaks in your defense. And Father, for those of us who are a little hard-hearted, who have slipped into a pattern of sin, we'd hear very clearly, do not sin, stop it. Father, for those of us who know our sins only too well and feel feel we can't come before you, would we hear very clearly there is one. There is an advocate, there is a lawyer, there is one who speaks at our defense. And again, look up and see Jesus Christ. Father, we want to be those who follow you closely, who walk in the light with you. So we will do that, looking to Christ and looking to obey you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.